And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street, Motel 6, it's Jonas Strand, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. And here we are, officially in the summer season of the podcast, which means that we will take breaks according to our whim, I suppose. Or I guess it's in the winter season according to your weird geography. All the way outside, Gary. But your winter well, it's 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 not freezing there, is it? No, it's raining. Like it's raining now. Oh, that's <laughs> it's raining here, and we consider this summer. What's the difference? Um, anyway, we since we last talked, we've had um, oh a, a number of interesting things happening in the field, but the most tragic of which was our friend, probably a closer friend to you than to me, although I liked him a lot, Gardner Dozois who was in the hospital while I was at the Nebula banquet a few weeks ago. And at that point, everybody thought he was going to come out uh, before this must, this sort of cascading infection. I've known a couple of other people who had things like that, yeah. and it's utterly terrifying to be part of the immediate family, so my feelings go out to them. Very much. Um, I mean, uh, obviously, Gardner's wife, Susan Casper, died a year or so earlier. And I think that took the wind out of his sails quite a bit, even though he was keeping very active. I mean, he'd overseen the publication of her remaining work, her collected short fiction and a novel of hers. And he was keeping busy with editing, right. obviously. He was still doing the year's best science fiction. He had completed the year's best science fiction, volume 35. And he had also completed a new fantasy anthology, really? The Book of Magic, which will come out this and October. And I heard he started writing some more short stories again. He absolutely had. He had started uh, publishing pretty regularly, actually, in FNSF by his standards. He published a handful of stories and I think was working probably on a handful more. It would not surprise me at all to see a couple more come out. I suspect most people simply knew Gardner as an editor and um, not as a short story writer and, and certainly not as a novelist. I think he only wrote one novel, maybe one in collaboration with someone else. He wrote or co-wrote three novels. Okay. He did a novel with George Alec Effinger back in the mid-70s called Nightmare Blue, and I think that was his first. Then there was uh, his only standalone novel, Strangers, which came out in uh, 78. And then there were, was uh, a collaboration with George Martin and Daniel Abraham called Hunter's Run, which I think was Daniel Abraham finishing an old piece that George and uh, Gardner had been working on. Mm. But the short stories have... Uh, well, they're... I guess a couple of collections of short stories, am I right? I, I yeah. confess I've read a handful of them. Some of them I thought were classics. There's one he wrote with Jack Dan called Down Among the Dead Men, yeah. uh, which is really kind of a classic uh, horror story. Look, Gardner started writing in the or publishing in the early 70s after he came back from the Army. Yeah? Mm. Uh, and his best original short fiction was collected in a book called The Visible Man, which remains a, an outstanding collection. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a period, though, after that. I mean, he became very close, I guess it must have been through Milford, that, that whole group of writers, with Jack Dan, with George Alec Effinger, with George Martin, who was a lifelong friend of his, mm -hmm. uh, and with the whole Clarion crowd, all that kind of thing. But what happened was, somewhere in there, he started writing you know, heavily, or co-writing heavily, with his friends uh, Jack Dan and Michael Swanwick, and uh, with Susan Casper, his wife. And they became, you know, the fiction factory, and they turned out some really wonderful work, mostly for the big slick magazines for Omni and Playboy and Penthouse, making uh -huh. lots and lots and lots of money. 
but also producing great stories. And in 1990, uh, Mark Sising, you might remember Mark Sising books, I remember that. Pro- produced a collection of their collaborative short fiction called uh, Slow Dancing Through Time. And then I think Jack Dan also collected some of the collaborations in a book that he did with, with PS Publishing. But some of those collaborations were just wonderful stories um, and are well worth seeking out. I mean, uh, I think there have been two stabs at collecting the best of Gardner's work, uh, Geodesic Dreams and Strange yeah. Days, uh, both of which I would heavily recommend. And I know that When the Great Days Came which is, or Come, which is also a best of, is out there as well. One of the things that uh, – I have to mention one story, which is not one of his best-known stories. And I, I mentioned it because I only read it a year or so ago. Mm-hmm. And it's one of, the, one of the few really good science fiction stories about baseball called The Hanging Curve. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful, uh, utterly bizarre, absurdist story, which could have been published in a postmodern literary magazine. A Hanging Curve is – for people who don't know baseball, it's a, it's a pitch which appears to hang in midair. It's not. It's really spinning. It's an optical illusion. But in his story, the, the pitch actually hangs in midair for, yeah. for like years. It can't be moved by any physical force in the universe. They have to build, I think, a new stadium around it or something. And then something like 40 years later, the pitch continues. It's just a wonderful conceit. And the reason it impressed me was because I used to think of Gardner as the uh, preserver of the kind of classic mainstream science fiction, which he was very fond of. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and, and, and certainly uh, the, the amount of time he spent editing Asimov's and The Year's Best uh, was, was in part a continuation of that. But what impressed me also was the extent to which he moved Asimov's away from being a very traditional magazine to being a much more eclectic magazine. That's one of those funny things when you try and track that. I think what had happened was Sean McCarthy actually did a lot to pick a direction. What Gardner did was he developed that further, he deepened it, and he took it to a much broader range of people and was very, very inclusive with the writers that he, that he got involved. You know, I mean, he probably loved science fiction short stories more than anybody you've ever met in your life. I mean, this is a man who... I mean, he edited his first anthology in the early 70s, but he did his first, he actually did his first year's best in 1977. So he had been doing it for over 40 years by the time, you know, by the time he passed away because he took over a series that I think maybe Terry Carr was doing or, no, Lester Del Rey. Lester Del Rey had been doing an, a series of year's bests. Oh, yeah, I've had, yeah. Yeah, for somebody. And Gardner actually did the final, ooh, Five, five volumes of that series, taking you know, take it up to about 1981. Um, and then, you know, did a few other bits and pieces and then got a gig for the very first issue of Asimov's. Not as the editor, uh, but uh, he, was, he was on the editorial colophon page for the first issue of Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. Uh, would, you, um, would you agree with the proposition, which I think I could defend, that he's at this point, the most influential editor in science fiction history. I have to think about that. You're, 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 well, I mean, I, okay, Gardner was a friend, and I want to say yes. I really want to say yes. He was fabulously influential, uh, as much as anything in the careers that he developed as anything else. But, but I mean, there, there are a few contenders out there, but Gardner would be in the first 
rank of, of names you might consider? Well, let me present my argument. The, uh, uh, the, because I, was, you know, I, I did this series of lectures and I've been thinking a lot about, and I've been looking at a lot of histories of science fiction, and they're enormously overweighted toward about a 30 or 40 year period between 19, well, 30 year period really between 1926 and 1956. Now, during that period, the legendary editors, first of all, Hugo Gernsback, who, to be really honest, if you count only amazing stories on, was a force in the field for less than a decade. I mean, by, by the early 30s, he had lost control of his magazines. He was uh, in, 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 in debt, all sorts of things. Uh, the, the next legendary editor, of course, was John W. Campbell, who becomes editor in 1937. By 20 years later, 25 years later, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, his influence has pretty much waned. He did a lot to introduce new writers during that period. He did a lot to expand the kind of science fiction that was being written. But I think it's short-sighted to look at the science fiction of the 30s and show how Campbell transformed that into Heinlein and uh, and Asimov and Van Vogt. That's only one of many changes that have taken place in the field. And that entire historical period, that is from the beginning of uh, of, of Gernsback's major influence to the end of Campbell's major influence is less than the scope of Gardner's career in, in, in its entirety. In other words, as a single editor, he's been influencing the field for longer than those two combined. Oh, sure, sure. There's no doubt that, that, that Gardner's influence sits particularly the period from, say, 75, from about 75 to 2000, his influence was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It waned a little bit, you'd have to say, pragmatically, when he stopped being editor of Asimov's in the early 2000s. When he was, I think when he was basically hoovering in and developing new writers in Asimov's and then adding them to canon in the year's best, he was having a fundamental, fundamental impact on the field. Um, yeah. It was a little harder once Asimov's disappeared off. I mean, and the, the, you have to understand, this is, I'm quibbling with you because I think about this stuff too much. Garden is fabulously influential and a marvelous editor and a wonderful story doctor. Um, so there's no doubt that he has an incredible influence. But see, the problem is when we start getting into the question of who is the most influential editor of all time. Well, first of all, I mean, Gerns, uh, Campbell has a, an enormous advantage over, say, Dozois, in that he was there at the beginning of a whole time period whereas Gardner is picking it up. So there's a lot of firsts that get laid at Campbell's feet because it was the beginning of modern science fiction in many ways. Um, Gardner, though, is an evolutionary thing, right, his, his career. Now, critical and vital, and critical and vital to, to how we think about things, but still, you know, an evolutionary force um, and brought on a, a generation of writers. I mean, I think that the... Asimov's science fiction magazine that covers Sean McCarthy's editorship through till the first 10 years of Desoir's editorship is one of the finest runs of a magazine in history. I think the you know, Asimov's of the 80s particularly is extraordinarily influential. Far, I mean, far more than later Asimov's, in fact, in my humble opinion, and vastly I, underrated. But, but, but uh, and I think that you're, you're making a point that... Uh that Campbell, at least, was given credit for having shifted the field into a, into a new era. And that's essentially 
the way we've looked at historically important editors. You know, Gernsback had to sell the pulp world on science fiction as a market, and that, that, that's the very important thing to do. Uh, Campbell, in so many words, made it grow up, take itself more seriously. That's, so we, we tend to look at Moorcock with the new wave. We tend to look at editors who uh, are reacting against something. Uh, Gernsback was reacting against uh, the fact that there wasn't a science fiction pulp magazine at all. And to some extent, may have been reacting against Weird Tales. Campbell was reacting against the, the, what had become of amazing and wonder stories in the 30s in the space opera. Moorcock was reacting against the science fiction of the uh, 50s. Uh, Bruce Sterling was reacting against the science fiction of the 70s. Those turned out not to be long-lasting influences. They were kind of revolutionary movements. I think what Gardner did was change the nature of the history of the field away from one revolution after another and toward inclusiveness. What always struck me as interesting about his year's best was that anybody who wanted to see old-fashioned hard SF could find it. You would find your favorites in there. Uh, you would also find people that you'd never heard of before uh, that may barely have been hard SF at all. You, you, you'd find social SF and that sort of thing. And then you'd find the people who were technically hard SF, but nothing like you'd seen before. As far as I'm concerned, from my personal reading, he discovered Greg Egan. I read no, four Greg... No, not at all. No, no, not even right. No, no, no. From my reading, he did. From my he did. Just okay. no. Just no. <laughs> Greg had been uh, all over the joint before that. Definitely. Greg had been Greg in his had own. Greg had been... Yeah. But, I mean, not that it wasn't important, but no. No, I understand. He'd been around. He was very popular. He was very well thought of. But he was the only author, I'm pretty sure, to have two stories in a Gardner's Year's Best and then two stories in the next year's best. Um which was Gardner more or less drumming home, this is one of the most important writers in the field and you better pay attention to him. I'm not concerned about how much he'd, he'd been publishing before or what people thought of him. He was suddenly a major writer who was going to dominate a year's best for like two years in a row. And his I, novels, I guess, but I, mean, I, 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 I can't not quibble because most of Greg's strongest period work wasn't published in Asimov's. I'm not talking about what was in Asimov's, I'm talking about what was in the year's best. What is revolutionary about Gardner's years of best science fiction? And I wish I could find the interview or the write-up where he wrote it. Is the actual mm -hmm. conception behind it? Because you have to take yourself back to the mid 1980s, at a time when we were maybe 10 years into the writing of bestseller style science fiction, and Jim Frankel puts together Blue Jay books, right? And Blue Jay published a lot of really remarkable books at the time, including Dan Simmons' first novel and some early Connie Willis and Greg Bear and all kinds of stuff, right? And they hook up Gardner to, to edit the year's best science fiction first annual collection in 1984, Collecting Stories from 1983. Right. That book, Gardner said, was intended to be parachuted into someone living in the middle of the nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, and it could give you a snapshot of everything you needed to know about science fiction every year. No years yep. best before that was ever like that. That was what was outstanding, uh, remarkable about it. It wasn't that it particularly championed one career or another, even though he had, he, he reflected what was happening in the field by showing those people. I mean, his great talent as an editor in the years best science fiction wasn't so much what he excluded as the fact that he reflected what was happening important, you know, you know sort of significantly in those 
you know, those anthologies of his. I think uh, I think he had a philosophy, though, and I think that it's something. It, it's interesting uh, because two two of my favorite editors, Gardner and and Ellen, and Ellen Datlow, uh, being another one. You don't count because you and I talk all the time, and I understand how. You, but it was very difficult to get Gardner to explain what he was doing uh, because he <laughs> tended to Lord say. Knows I well, yeah, and, and we all tried, and, and you usually end up being at, 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 at the wrong end of one of his classic jokes. And you, but, but you know he was, he was deeply thoughtful about this. My argument is that he changed the nature of science fiction editing among the major uh, magazine editors and anthologists from being reactive and, um, and defensive to being what I would say is accumulative. He did not uh, – accumulative is one word. Um, A-C-C-U-M, whatever it is. In other words, his view of science fiction was that you didn't get rid of the old space opera. You didn't get rid of cyberpunk. You didn't get rid of the new humanism of the 80s. You, you, you expanded on it. In other words, science fiction accumulated different styles, different modes, different kinds of writers, and he had an amazing ear for the best writers in each of those different modes. He didn't seem to be about rejecting anything in the history of science fiction, which he, and he had done classic anthologies, the good old stuff and that sort of thing. So while being very appreciative of the history of the field, I think his argument was that it proceeds in layers rather than proceeds through a series of reactions against earlier modes. Gardner would always talk in the last 20 years about what he called core science fiction. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily ever, you know, I think, explicitly defining it. But I always took it to mean the kind of science fiction that had always been around. You know, the evolu- what had evolved from Golden Age science fiction, that classic mm-hmm. spaceship, spaceship adventure story or whatever else, the evolution of that, plus some other stuff. I mean, because this, this is a guy who manages to write, to say, I'm going to edit an anthology of core science fiction stories in the year's best S, SF, mm-hmm. but still include Avram Davidson and R.A. Lafferty or whoever in it, you know. So exactly. uh, he was absolutely capable of embracing more atypical, more idiosyncratic work, largely because of the recognition of what was happening generally. But he absolutely was aware that science fiction was a spectrum, if you like, that, you know, sort of yeah. traditional science fiction continued, then you know, the, the you know, follow-on generation of, you know, sort of new science fiction then continued and so on. So you're still getting, in effect, Golden Age science fiction, uh, say the you know, new, new wave science fiction, cyberpunk, all this right. continues to be writing, all the, and, and just getting that sort of core group of it into his anthologies, which by and large he did. I mean, I think the energy he brought to it was pretty staggering. Uh, the perceptiveness, yes. I think he was, at least in person, a very self-deprecating person. And I think that's why it was hard. I think he... he I'm guessing from having spent time with him, he found it difficult to take himself seriously or to talk about what he did as though it were serious, even though he was serious about it. I think that's true. Uh, so if you were to try and say, well, how do you edit this? Then he would probably go to humor. Some of it may have been, and I don't know because we never discussed this overtly, because he couldn't articulate it, even though he was very talented. I mean, you only have to read the book that he did with uh, Mike Swanwick, being Gardner yeah. Dozois. 
to see that he, he was deeply perceptive. But I think you had to kind of like draw the explanation out of him. I edited two anthologies with him, and we never talked about what made a good science fiction story. Not one. Really? Yeah. I learned, I mean, I love Gardner, but I learned nothing from him editing those two books at all. Um, and I did, I did them deliberately because I wanted, I thought, how do you do a workshop with the best editor, work, the best short fiction editor working in the field today? You co-edit a book with them, and you will see them at work. Um, uh-huh. it, it still stayed behind closed doors. You, you, you just talked about each, each individual story without talking about principles? Never talked about principles, and generally the each individual story thing was something we just batted back and forth, you know. But you were batting back and forth, very interesting concept. The whole new space opera idea was a conversation between the classic core science fiction and newer writers who wanted to do new and different things with that core. Um, so uh, it, it, it seems to me, I, I, it amazes me that you could have avoided having those discussions. I mean, you, the introduction to the thing are very, very articulately explained what new space opera was to me anyway. I have sat down several times with major editors in the history of the field. And mm. it's my great regret that I didn't get to do it with Terry Carr, who I'd love to have had a chance to learn from. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a closed book. You know, I've asked out flat out to major editors, you know, colleagues and people who I've admired for many years. How do you do this? What do you do? It's like, I don't know. I just do it. Typically, I mean, is there, is there a superstition like don't think about riding a bicycle or you'll fall off? Is something like that? Maybe I don't know. I mean, I'm hesitant to name names because it's not really quite fair. But no. uh, certainly, I have not. I have asked, and I've been interested, and I've been unable to get clear, articulate answers from people on the how do you approach editing this? How do you break that story down? What was it? And that, I understand that if you went to a Milford or a Clarion or something and you were there with Kate Wilhelm or Damon Knight, they had taught themselves to do that. And I'm sure that if you sat alongside somebody at a Clarion and watched them explain to a writer, uh, you would probably pick some stuff up. But a lot of it comes down to being a thoughtful reader. I suppose so. I mean, the people I've heard described as... um as great story editors. I've always heard that described in terms of they had to have a story in front of them in order to know how to fix it. Uh, but they couldn't tell you uh, how to write a good story in the first place. It's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, um, to, to explain from, from a reader's point of view. I mean, to have it explained to me because I don't even try to do this myself. Um, but uh, the people I've talked to who uh, looked at... Eileen uh, Gunn told me that uh, Timothy Duchamp is one of the great line-by-line story editors, but only if she has a story in front of her, and she's, I guess, edited Eileen's stuff. Um, and Gardner certainly had that reputation as well, that he would never tell you, apparently, what you ought to write in the story, but he would Lord tell not. you once you had... But, but the, the point is, this is, this is, again, from the prescriptive model of a John W. Campbell or a Horace Gold, uh, who would say, oh, this is the story we need, or even a Fred Pohl at times, saying, write this story. Um, he was a technician rather than a prescriptionist. I don't know what the word is. It's, it obviously, yeah, it's obviously a different set of skills, I suppose. But what I would say to you is that 
sitting down with a writer or being in contact with a writer and saying, take this, well, write this story. Yeah. Is, I think, a pretty rare thing to do in short fiction, in the history of short fiction. Campbell apparently does it all the time, and he did all kinds of sort of manipulative, hinky kind of story things to like, oh, I have this cover, write me nine stories around this cover or yeah, something. And I know that, I mean, but you can see how tricky that is. I mean, Hartwell tried it a couple of times, right? I mean, David Hartwell, who's a wonderful, uh-huh. wonderful editor, met one of the top, let's say 10. I mean, really, you're splitting hairs. Let's say he's in the top, that top echelon of editors in the history of the field. And a couple of times at Torg.com, he would take a painting and get, or a piece of art and get people to do four, five, six stories around it. Yeah. And it never really shone. Um, I, I mean, in, in fairness, I'm not sure if you'd go back and look at the Campbell stuff now, whether it shone either. But in recollection, that was a thing that he did to try and shape the field. And I know that Paul, I think, did it as well, though I was about saying yeah. to fill the pages of magazines. So, yeah. But that was necessary. That, that, that was you're right. I think that was a matter of uh, survival, filling out a magazine. One of the things that uh, one of the things that Paul realized, uh, that, that I think all those magazine editors realized, is that uh, the stories they're buying, only a few of the stories in each issue are the product. The issue, the magazine is being sold. Yeah. The story is the content of the magazine. So the reason we think of editors as so influential in science fiction. Uh, and and not so influential in in in, uh, in romance or mysteries or mainstream fiction is that the magazine is the product you're buying, and there may be one or two great stories in each issue of a magazine, and that's fine. And then you have to buy stuff to fill it out. So that's where I think you got Paul and and um, Campbell and others saying we need this, and they needed reliable uh, yeah. writers, run-of-the-mill stories. Uh, go back and read a bunch of uh, issues of Astounding from the early 40s, which I did once, and surprising how many of the stories are utterly forgettable. They were yeah. just there to pull out the issue. Um, and yet nobody complained about that. I think the difference today is, especially with online uh, fiction, with the magazines being available online, with stories being available through hundreds of venues, the story is much more the product and much, in the magazine, much less the product than it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I guess looking back at the, you know, Gardner, well, there's Gardner, the magazine editor, and he shepherded a generation of new science fiction writers into the world, and for that we should be grateful. Gardner, the... That, sorry, yeah? I was, I was going to say, I, I think if you look at the issue of Asimov's, um, I don't think you'll find very many filler stories in it. They may be different, there may be stories that are not to my taste, but it seemed to me that every space in the magazine he wanted to fill, and I, th- I think this is true uh, with Sheila Williams as well. I'm less familiar with Sean McCarthy's. My sense was that if you have a space in the magazine, you don't get somebody to do a run-of-the-mill uh, imitation Eric Frank Russell story. You use it to put somebody in that might be a little bit offbeat. Yeah. I don't know. I think if you look back, right, uh, Gardner's first 10 years at Asimov's mm-hmm. is particularly outstanding. Now, there are things that you know, historical things that lay that were in favor of that happening. He'd picked up the the, 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 the you know the baton from Shauna, who'd done an extraordinary job that gets underrated these right. days, right? And then, and you have to remember how dominant Asimov's became, along with Analog and FNSF, as the go-to markets to send your stories to, right? Right now, Asimov's with I mean Sheila has a, great, a completely different 
challenge, which she meets brilliantly, but she has a different challenge. And that challenge is in 2018, there's a whole bunch of other major markets to go to with your short fiction. Gardner had the whole gusher of it coming straight, straight at him, right? Right. Asimov's in the 80s and into the 90s were seen as being much more innovative. Analog, which at that time was being very, very capably edited, was seen as being old-fashioned. FNSF was changing. I think that was around the time. I think Ed Froman was still there, getting towards the time mm-hmm. when Chris Rush would take over, right? So the innovative place to sell, sell your fiction, if you could, was Asimov. Everybody went there. Not right. the same now. I think the great stretch in Gardner's magazines are the first five volumes of the year's Best SF. And I think mm-hmm. there's a particular reason for it. I think the 35-year you know, library of Dozois' Year's Best Science Fiction is an extraordinary achievement. Those first five or six volumes, they capture the, enti- the, the birth of science fiction, of modern science fiction, modern, modern science fiction, of cyberpunk, of the the the, the human the, you know, the one of the new wave humans, whatever they were, uh, of everything that was happening right then, that huge that cusp, that volatile period, when you know Stan Robinson and Lucia Shepard and Michael Swanwick and all these other people, Connie Wills were writing incredibly important stories. That's all snapshotted right there, uh, and nowhere else in much the same way. So there's that. I think that's a, a, a core achievement, and. One we don't sort of think about too much because you get kind of overwhelmed by it because Gardner would have edited 120 or 130 anthologies, I would guess. I mean, he did 50 at least with Jack, so you know it doesn't take long to get get to you know well into the mid hundreds. And I mean, look, a lot of them were they're all well done. Some of them were surprising. Uh, some of them showed just how perceptive an anthologist Gardner was because he took what would have been an ordinary book. I mean, I remember when he, he co-edited a book called Ripper with uh, Susan Casper. Uh-huh. It, was, it was a dumb theme anthology. Well, not dumb. It was a theme anthology, Jack the Ripper stories. Yeah. But it's an extraordinary book. The stories they've got in there are just wonderful. You know, he does 20 plus volumes of the um, Magic Tales series with, with Jack, which yeah. is a great achievement. Uh Probably one of his most underrated books in my mind is his Modern Classics of Fantasy, which is one of the great historical anthologies uh, in our field. Mm. Uh, One of the uh, into college classrooms, or at least it did for a while. mm -hmm, Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I would if if somebody out there hasn't read Modern Classics of Fantasy, which you can still get, I would really strongly recommend that you hunt it out. It's well, well worth it. Um, and then, like I say, there's, and you've touched on it yourself, in amongst these interesting anthologies, the bestseller books that he's been co-editing with, with George Martin these days, there's this smattering of wonderful, wonderful short fiction. A Dream at Noonday, which is wonderful, a special kind of morning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, just, just spectacular stories. Dinner Party, which was a solo piece of his, which is devastating and was in an anthology that uh, I've always loved called Light Years and Dark that Michael Bishop edited. Um, and then, you know, as I say, the collaboration. So his contribution to the field will always stand, I think, as one of the great contributions. I mean, we could, like I said, we'll always go back and forth about who's greatest this and who's greatest that, but mm. you will always have his name in that conversation. 
You can't talk about the greatest editors in the history of the field, and in many ways one of the great writers in the history of the field, without talking about Gardner. That's that's kind of my point. That his career. Let me just going back with the years best alone. You're talking about you know three and a half decades, four and a half decades if you go back earlier to his, his, his earliest editing. Uh, that's an extraordinarily long career in this field, um, especially for somebody who's as close to the center of it as, uh, as he's been. So I think that to survive all the changes that have gone through and, 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 to, and to be responsive, responsive to them, to be sensitive to them. I mean, uh, the, the, the issue which has been certainly an issue in science fiction for the last decade involves diversity, involves multiculturalism, involves internationalism, and involves alternate voices. And he's embraced that, it seems to me. It seems to me that he was not uh, holding on to a particular vision of the field. No. And this may, be the pro- this may be the problem when it comes to historians. He did not try to articulate a prescription for what is a good science fiction story or a good fantasy story. Um, he was instead somebody who had an extraordinary talent for recognizing this, from whatever quarter it came from. So he became one of the more inclusive writers, uh, inclusive editors, I think, by never announcing that he was trying to be an inclusive editor. He was simply, if the fiction appealed to him, if it, if it struck him as... And, 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 and I, I couldn't prove this, but I, I have those... I'm looking at his year's best over there on the shelf right now. I'd be willing to bet that this uh, trend toward diversity and, and, and inclusiveness is reflected in each one of those annual volumes as well. I've never run numbers, Gary, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, Gardner was always in search of great stories. That was always easy. I think he was in search of great voices as well, which is a slightly different thing from great stories. Yep. And he will be, I mean, uh, as a a sort of almost side note to that, he will be sorely missed at conventions. He was enormously fun. He was always silly and great, a great laugh. Um, one of our podcasts we um, linked to it uh, not long after he passed away was the conversation he had with Jack Dan uh, when we were at World Fantasy one year, I think in 2014. And it was extraordinary fun because he was just a delightful human being on top of everything else. Well, and... and- he and Jack together are, this is one of those podcasts we weren't near. I mean, Jack is a terrifically funny guy himself. Um, and, as, and as I recall, Susan was in the room when we recorded that and made a comment or two very, very briefly. So it was, it was one of the most, as I said at the time, raucous and entertaining and lively and funny podcasts we've done. Um, and I think that's where he was most comfortable in public. Uh, that's always fascinating to me about people who are... Um, well, great editors or writers, there is this. There's a very dark side to his fiction. Um, there was a dark side to his personality. I've been told by all the kinds of people who knew him better than I did. Um, but in public, he was more fun than almost anybody in the field that I've met. Mm. There was no doubt that he, he he projected that very strongly. That he yeah. was a fun person having fun being fun. No doubt at all. Um, but yes, I mean. He was always a very serious person, very serious-minded, um, and sometimes felt like he could, he could sort of, he was one of those people who, who always thought things were going to end badly and then worked to make sure they didn't, you know. I, you know, I don't know a conversation that I ever had with him that didn't involve, you know, assuming that something was going to end up in terrible disaster. You know, he well, was that's... A, bit of an, a bit of an Eeyore, you know, but 
the best kind because you know he was always committed to things going better. So he will indeed be sorely missed. He was a wonderful man, and you know the field is shaped differently now that he's no longer in it. Um, I'm I'm glad to see that the amount of attention that uh, that this was getting on social media and this sort of thing because again, as you probably know, uh, editors uh, it, they're, they're there are degrees of awareness of editors. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and to, to the extent that um, you know, serious readers, for example, know that Sheila is editing Asimov's now, and people are, are aware of the editors. Of the, but, but when it comes to anthologists, one of the things that, um, that Gardner has going for him was he became a brand name. Yeah. And so he was a brand name in the same way that Judith Merrill was a brand name and Terry Carr was a brand name. There was a core of readers who would know anything... But there was also uh, there are also people who I think and I, I'm guessing it's a substantial amount of people who will pick up an anthology, especially a year's best, barely pay any attention to who edited it because it says year's best. I want to catch up on the science fiction field. I haven't read much of it. I I used to like it, and this the, the, the says says year's best. Um, I think Gardner became a brand name simply because of longevity. Uh, he did. I mean, we, we didn't quite get the, get to the stage where we renamed Year's Bests as Dozois, but we almost could. Well, it, absolutely. Uh, and it's 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 probably a kind of uh, tribute to him that he's an editor that I think most science fiction readers could name. Uh, oh, yeah. Which is not always the case. Uh, I mean, people uh, under a certain age, probably anthologists that influenced my childhood were people with names like Groff Conklin and August Durlis. Nobody thinks of Durlith as an anthologist anymore. They think of him in terms of Lovecraft and Arkham House and that sort of thing. Uh, and Conklin produced, I don't know how many anthologies, that, uh, some, that, that were always pretty good. But nobody that I've met knew anything about him. He was yeah. not a personality yeah. in the field. He didn't show up at conventions. So Gardner was both a, perfect, a, a public figure and an editor and actually had, I think... To, your, to, to the credit of people in your profession, had elevated the role of editor to something that most readers and fans now take a little bit more seriously. Well, I mean, I certainly think that in the fan, well, I think fans to some degree have always been more aware of That's, editors than any, than anybody else. They've always taken them quite seriously. I mean, and I think Campbell, if you like, it's, it's, well, probably actually in fairness, um, Gernsback's editorship was the start of the sort of star editor kind of a thing. And short fiction editors always had an advantage over novel editors. I think That's true. it's only in the last 10 years that novel editors have really got more credit. Uh, maybe not necessarily the credit they deserve, but at least more credit. Um, whereas, you know, short fiction editors, it's been a thing. I mean, your Desoise, your Datlos, your Campbells, your Cars, your uh, Merrills, everybody... You know, over the years, have had their, you know, their, uh, their, their time in the sun, should we say? But not like Gardner's. Gardner's Gardner was sort of, you know, th- this is more like the passing of the Raj than anything else. Every, everything is different now. Uh, I, I mean, Asimov's is. is still there, but Asimov's is different now. It's it's wonderful and and um, uh, but it's not the same. I'm not sure that. Uh that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, certainly it's a no. bad thing to lose Gardner to learn. It. But, but, but I think one of the things that he represented was this kind of change. Um, I mean, yeah. I, I go back. There, there were some stories. I mean, it, the thing I would say about his year's best, and I would, 
Um, well, this is this is a really actually completely useless insight now that I'm about to say it. <laughs> in every one of his years best, and for that matter in every one of yours, I can find stories that I just didn't care for. Okay. Uh, and I think the and, and I could I could see why they were there, but I was okay, this is not a, a matter of taste. One of the it's a matter of technical prowess. Um when uh, Dadlow and Windling were doing the fantasy and horror, there were stories in there that I hated when Ellen does her year's best. So uh, that's usually a small number of stories. Um, but I also recognize that these are eclectic anthologies that are intended for more readers than me. I've never, present, I've never pretended to be an ideal science fiction reader. And it strikes me that most people reading a year's best anthology, if it's a truly eclectic anthology, are going to find stories that simply don't push their buttons. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. How did I miss this writer? Okay. I, I think maybe I'm going to completely disagree with you, but let me see if I can say why. Okay. I think eclectic's the wrong word. I don't think, and I didn't have this conversation particularly with him, that Gardner picked stories that were eclectic, even though he picked stories that were eclectic. I think what he did was he had an idea of what shape the field was, an idea of what science fiction stories were, and he would appreciate stories that were really strong examples of the kind of story that should be in a book like his. Mm-hmm. And so he would pick those stories. There are stories that he's published that honestly, and I mean published in the year's best, as one of the best stories of the year, that I don't understand how they got published in the first place. Okay, that's kind of what I'm saying. Um, so what you have to do is take the hat off of what I like. Now, Gardner was a great champion of both what he liked and what he appreciated. I think what you see in his year's best is that at its most developed, where he's gone, I love this, 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 and I see this is an important part of the field. I see this is something we need to, need to laud, and I see that this is a great example of it, whether or not I love it myself. I think that's a very important distinction between what you like and what you appreciate. And I think that that has to do with the extent to which you want to understand the field as opposed to simply wanting more stories of the kind that you like. Yeah, um, yeah. The, 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 the third category, which uh, speaking as a reader, not an editor, are stories, are stories of discovery. And I, this must happen to you as well. But every year in actually in, in almost every year's best anthology, there's usually a writer I don't know at all um, that you or somebody else is introducing me to. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, I posted on Facebook not long after uh, Gardner's passing. I went through I went through the tables of contents, and the the number of writers who I must have read for the first time in one of Gardner's anthologies was astonishing. I mean, it went back to people who are now been friends, like Eileen Gunn. Um, so I think it's not just looking at individual stories. There may be a story that does or does not really turn me on, but the voice, the writer does. So I think that there's a sense of mixing uh, stories that you appreciate with stories that you like and mixing writers that you like with writers you appreciate rather than love. Well, yeah, I mean, and you can see the writers who Gardner championed in his years best that were most, I won't say weren't championed elsewhere, were most championed when championed by him. He right. was an enormous advocate, for example, of Levi Tidhars in the United States, possibly more than any other short fiction editor by 
some distance. Uh, he's always done that. I mean, he's always had an eye for great writers, for interesting stories, and a willingness to bring them up and then stick with those people um, through their careers. Um, I was going to say, I mean, when, in talking about this, a book like Gardner's or Alan Datlow's or Neil Clark's or Rich Horton's or mine, if it doesn't present you with new stories every year that you're, you're surprised by, people you've not heard of, then either you know, the job's not being done properly or science fiction is fatally ill. Because it's the nature of the field that new writers enter all the time and we should be encouraging them for new writers all the time. That means they should be pro producing new great work all the time. So if that new great work is being held back because the, the editors who are putting together books like The Year's Best mm. aren't open, that they're already committed to the group of people that they're, that they're reading, and so they're not you know, really paying attention to those new, new writers, then those, those books fail. You must always be bringing in new people all the time, giving them space. And that's something Gardner did and did really well. I think he did really well, but at the same time, there's a category of writers uh, that he championed that never have become major figures despite... Oh, my favorite example is probably Robert Reed, who has mm -hmm. been in many, many of Gardner's Year's Best, always mm -hmm. deservedly, um, has never been a massively successful popular writer, and yet that unique vision he had is something that clearly appealed to Gardner, it appeals to me as well, um, that uh, that needs to be preserved along with the new voices. And it seems to me that balance is what, is, is what you really need. I yeah. don't think you need to have uh, somebody writing. In, and in, in 2018, I don't think you really need to have a 1961 Gordon Dixon story in, in your ears vest. Um, no. But no. I think there are writers who have been consistently producing new and interesting material within a framework that they may have designed years or decades ago. Uh, and to some extent, those writers need to be recognized as well. I mean, what I would say about the Gordon Dixon comment, though, right, and I, I know how you intended it, so I'm not trying to you know, put them in, in, in the incorrect light, but you would still pick up the people who are writing the modern best versions of that 1940s Gordon Dixon. Oh, yeah. Or 50s or 60s, Gordon Dixon. And that's what Gardner did. Gardner identified those, you know, those people. He, he made sure that he tried to reflect that, that kind of work along with all this other stuff as well. So, yeah. so there's new stuff. There's old stuff that's made new again by different approaches. And there's old stuff which is done really well. Uh, and I mean, do you have this sort of mix in mind when you're putting together an anthology? Yes. I mean, what I tend to do is read as much as I can as widely as I can, keep notes on everything. But when, it, when the time comes to actually put the volume together, the table of contents, yes, very much. You're kind of going, oh, look, I've got something. You know, I'm looking for you know, core science fiction, core fantasy, and then more interesting, more experimental fantasy, and a, an array, if I can, of established writers and new writers, you know, because... Anybody who picks up a year's best, in my, to my way of thinking, wants both. He wants, you know, you, these days you want Robert Silverberg if he's writing, um, mm -hmm. Nancy Kress if, she, if she's got something new, Al Reynolds if he's got something new, Elliot de Bodard if she's got something new, yeah. 
Jinmei Prasad because she's just got, she is just new and has something, and whoever comes after her. That's what you want in a single year's best. You want that feeling that you're seeing. And this is the, the point where, the, I mean, the other thing, and this is where it's at odds with some other things about what a year's best SF should do. Um, you also have something that's, going, that's showing science fiction itself moving forward. What? Oh, nothing. Um, well, uh, that's kind of what I'm saying about being inclusive rather than prescriptive. I mean, uh, the sense I, I've never gotten this from you. I've never gotten, never gotten it from an anthologist that I liked. But the idea of telling people what fiction they ought to like, and there was a lot of that, I think, in Campbell in this editing. Mm, yeah. There was a certain amount of that in, in Horace Gold's editing. There has been this missionary sense of you need to understand what science fiction is, and here it is, um, and, and you need to appreciate this. Actually, some of David Hartwell's historical anthologies were essentially lectures in the form of anthologies. And yeah. from somebody who's interested in the history of the field, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, for somebody who wants a lot of good fiction, there's a sense that I don't know why this is here. Um, <laughs> this is here to make a point. It's not here to entertain me or inform or enlighten me. Yeah. I mean, in fairness with, with Hart, to, to Hartwell, I would have to say he always tries to do both. I mean, uh, hmm. The Dark Descent, which is maybe his greatest anthology. Probably. Um, is both an anthology of great stories and great to read and a... A lecture on on what you should what how you should see this kind of fiction. It was both, and he tried that with greater or less with success with you know the hardest F Renaissance and other anthologies. But that that was the most successful. Gardner was never going to do that. That that no. was not him. He was not out there to make a point. I, I mean, apart from the fact that I mean, when I look back across my reading life, he and three or four other people are the great pillars holding up the, you know the world of science fiction that I read. I mean, Hartwell himself. Right. Um, Desoir, one or two of the major novel editors, Charles, were pushing this, this, the importance of science fiction forward. That's what they were interested in, what they talked about, what they lived. You know, and you, uh, the fact that, that over the last 10 years, you know, we've lost a number of those people has made enormous change. But you can see new people who are doing the same thing, a new version of the same thing. You know, this is, the, the, if you like, the, the best thing about the, the sad passing of Gardner Dozois is that the field, whilst it will be a different shape, whilst it will be lesser without him, is not going to die without him. Um, there are other people who are passionate and informed and committed and working hard and making a difference to the field. You know, so. No, I think it's true. And it's, it, it's a tragedy when we lose Gardner. It was a tragedy when we lost David Hartwell a couple of years ago. You're right. The field goes on. It's going on after everybody, but it's it's different because it's mm. been changed by these editors, and this is kind of what I'm saying. So, yeah. so science fiction, as it goes forward, is is going to be post Dozois science fiction, and it'll take a long time for editors and and scholars, very few of whom pay attention to this. The only one who really does is Mike Ashley in the UK, to look at how the field comes out of the Dozois era, different from when it went in. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah. It certainly make guesses about that already, but it'll be a few years before we really see what his impact looks like historically. Very much, but you know, at the end of the day, we're just—I mean, readers will miss his books, and the rest of us will just miss him. You know, I won't get any more grumbly emails because he columns later because he doesn't want to do something about it. And uh, we—I we, mean, he and I were talking about editing some other, you know, some other editing projects together, which now. 
you know, it won't happen. And so there won't be a grumbly back and forth about that and seeing each other at conventions. And that's, that's sad. I mean, I'm, what I hope will happen, I don't know, but I hope that uh, at this year's Worldcon in San Jose, there will be a, some sort of memorial and a, a chance to sort of farewell him in the kind of way that he deserved as, as one of the most important you know, people in our field. I hope that will happen too. But I think we're at the end of our hour, Gary. We managed to talk about this just for a whole hour. I probably could have talked about it for longer, but we should probably wind up. I was, I'm, I'm sitting in here, like I say, looking across at two shelves of his year's best. And had we continued, I would have started pulling them off the shelves and reading the table of contents, which probably would make an interesting hour or so for people who want a reading list of short fiction of the last 30 years. But can you imagine uh, going into that series of reading... 35 volumes of, what, 700 pages each. I don't know how many stories that amounts to. Um, but that, the, look, the, the first one's really good. <laughs> oh, okay, I'll go back and see if I've got The first one with the Tom Kidd cover on it, with uh, Blind Shemmy by Jack Dan in it, and I think Cicada Queen by Bruce Sterling, and there's a great Avram Davidson story in there, if memory serves me, and a, a bunch of other stuff, so... The first one's really good. It's just like with the with the Detlow Windling years best. First one's you're really showing, good. You're showing, you're showing off, John. You're showing off the fact that you've memorized tables of contents of anthologies. No one does that, Jonathan. Actually, uh, Gary, it's just that one. Okay, fine. <laughs> because it's a really good book. I'm sure it is. I will go pull it off the shelf as soon as we finish recording. Okay. Well, you take care, and I'll talk to you next week. All right, talk to you next week. Thank you. Until then, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>